Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, the U.S. Supreme Court preview panel for the 2023-2024 term features an expert panel of Minnesota law faculty who offer their insights into some of the major cases on the 2023-2024 docket. Visiting Assistant Professor of Law Elizabeth Bentley moderated the discussion and introduced the featured panelists, including Nadia Agnano, Associate Clinical Professor of Law, Sapna Kumar, Henry J. Fletcher, Professor of Law, and Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law. This event was recorded on October 5th, 2023. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School. For more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for the U.S. Supreme Court preview for the October 2023 term. Um, we have a ton of material to cover today, so I want to make sure we can just jump right in. And I'd like to just start by introducing our great panel today. So um, if you don't know, my name is Elizabeth Bentley. I'm a visiting assistant professor of law here at the law school and the director of the Civil Rights Appellate Clinic. Um, I also teach first-year constitutional law, so I hope some of my students are in the crowd. Um, I'm joined all the way on my left by Professor Sapna Kumar, who's the Henry J. Fletcher Professor of Law. Professor Kumar joined us this year um, on the faculty from the University of Houston Law Center, and her scholarship focuses on international law and administrative law issues as they relate to patent rights. Um, sitting directly next to me here is Professor Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law. Um, Professor Rosenstein uh, joined the law school after serving as an attorney advisor in the Office of Law and Policy at the National Security Division at DOJ and previously served as Special Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. And on my right, um, we have Nadia Anghiano, Associate Clinical Professor of Law and the Director of the Federal Immigration Litigation Clinic. She's also a Minnesota law grad and an expert in US immigration law and advocacy. So this term comes on the heels of yet another blockbuster term at the US Supreme Court. Last year, the court decided major issues in areas as wide ranging as affirmative action, the intersection of free speech and anti-discrimination laws, cases involving election law, copyright, federal administrative law, and so many others. And by all accounts, the court is not slowing down. Um, we're facing another huge year at the Supreme Court, and we're excited to share at least some thoughts that we have about that today. But before we dive into the actual cases, I just wanted to share a few quick observations about the court itself as it's entering its newest term. So first, um, at this event last year, for those of you who are able to make it, we talked about the historic appointment of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson to the court. Uh, when she joined the court last year, she brought important expertise, such as being the first former public defender to serve on the court, um, a former chair of the Sentencing Commission. She joined Justice Sotomayor as the only other justice with experience as a trial court judge. And beyond that, she also brought her own unique perspective as the first black woman to be appointed to the court in its history. So we were all eager to see what effect she might have on the court, um, whether the dynamics of the court itself or the decisions. And what is clear, having um, seen her now in a year on the bench, um, she has certainly found her voice. So by that, I mean she was an active participant at oral argument. She spoke 57% more on average than her fellow justices. But beyond kind of her activity at oral argument, she also wrote more decisions, opinions, um, than any other first term justice on the court. And in it, what I mean is not just majority opinions, but dissents and other separate writings. And in particular, she's the only first term justice to have written solo dissents, meaning writing for herself and only for herself. Um, that's something that in, in the past we've seen 
uh, develop over time. Her voice has also been quite impactful. She is writing on a wide range of issues, ranging from jurisdictional issues to affirmative action, to the death penalty, to immigration, and to bankruptcy law. And her questions that she's pushing in oral argument or um, writing in her dissents have translated in many ways into Supreme Court decisions written by her colleagues, notably in the affirmative action decision, which she was in dissent, um, but certainly there is um, a lot of responses to her in the majority decision, um, as well as in the majority decision in the voting rights case last year. So um, I'm certainly excited to see what she'll be writing on and, uh, and engaging with in year two. So last year we also discussed the waning public confidence in the court, and on that front, the biggest issue this year revolves around ethical issues at the court. So I'm not gonna share all the stories since you've probably seen it pop up in your news feeds, but I'm referencing drama surrounding private jet trips, other like incomplete disclo disclosures on congressionally mandated financial forms, uh, the use of staff, court staff, relating to book sales, um, and controversies over recusals. So as a really quick primer, there are a lot of federal laws out there that require all, or a handful of federal laws that require all judges, including Supreme Court justices, to comply with those financial disclosure laws and certain recusal requirements. There's also this judicial code of conduct that applies indisputably to all lower court judges. Um, but the big issue is that the Supreme Court has never considered itself to be bound by those laws, whether they're the federal laws or the, um, the code of conduct even if they say they follow those laws, or maybe they selectively follow them in certain instances. Um, but generally the court has, um, in, in some writings, and if you have um, hear the justices speak about it, um, talk about the fact that Article Three creates the Supreme Court, whereas Congress can create the lower courts. So while Congress can regulate ethical issues for the lower courts, it doesn't have that same direct regulatory power as the Supreme Court does for itself. So Congress, of course, doesn't stop trying to do that, but as a result of these separation of powers issues, we've seen a lot of calls for the court itself to develop ethical rules that would you know, police itself and hold themselves accountable for any issues that may call the legit legitimacy of the court into question. So we've seen some movement on this over the past couple of months, um, and we know the justices are thinking and talking about it. Um, some of them have changed their behavior by explaining recusal decisions um, more clearly, uh, others, um, including Justice Kavanaugh, recently said at a conference that they're working on something. So it's something you know we're definitely bound to be hearing about more this term. Okay, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to the cases for the term, and we'll start with Professor Kumar. I'm going to start with the Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo case, um, which is a really important administrative law case that's before the Supreme Court this term. And the facts of the case involve the Magnuson-Stevens Act and fishery management uh, via the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, services. But what keeps administrative law professors up at night is not the future of the herring fishing industry, as, as, as interesting and important as that is, but speak, rather- Speak for yourself. <laughs> I know, I know, like herring, that's why you're here. Uh, but rather the fact that the Supreme Court, the question before it is, should the court overturn Chevron versus National Resource, Natural Resource Defense Council, one of the most cited Supreme Court decisions? Um, for those of you who haven't taken leg reg yet, uh, Chevron gives us a two-step test when a court reviews an agency's interpretation of its ambiguous uh, enabling governing statute. Um, and step one, the court looks at whether the statute is truly ambiguous. Step two, the court looks at whether the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And if it is reasonable, if it is ambiguous, then the court defers to the agency's interpretation. As the Supreme Court, however, has gotten more conservative, it's become uneasy with how powerful agencies are and raise concerns about the lack of oversight, uh, judicial and otherwise. So the issue is gonna be what, do, what does this court decide to do with Chevron? 
An unlikely possibility is they say Chevron is great and we're leaving it alone. I don't think that that's gonna actually happen. Um, another possibility is that some form of Chevron and the two-step test will remain, but they'll punch a bunch of holes into it and make it weaker and harder for the agency to qualify for, for Chevron deference. I think the more likely possibility is that they're gonna scrap it and replace it with some kind of a search, more searching type of review, such as hard look review via the State Farm case, for those of you who are familiar with that. I think one thing is for certain, though, we're gonna see big changes in administrative law and deference, and that that's gonna continue not just with this case, but with future ones. Then, turning to the Vidal versus Elster case, this one, the facts really do matter. So in 2018, Steve Elster tried to register a trademark for the phrase Trump too small to put onto t-shirts. Um, the phrase, I'm not gonna get into the details of it, but it alludes to taunts between Trump and Rubio and you know, the Republic when they were both running for the presidency uh, during the primaries. Elster wanted to register Trump too small for political commentary, uh, and the PTO examiner rejected the application, citing two sections of the Lanham Act. And the relevant one is section 2C, which prohibits marks identifying a living individual without that person's consent. Um, the board, uh, the PTO and the board rejected, uh, uh, the board upheld the rejection. Um, it went on appeal to the US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is an Article III court. And that court reversed saying that this is a violation of the First Amendment. This is content-based restriction of speech by the government. And so now this is before the Supreme Court. And What's interesting is the court in recent years has taken a very uh, aggressive approach in terms of getting rid of uh, trademark provisions that impinge upon the First Amendment. Um, so there was a, a 2017 decision, Mattel versus Tam, a 2019 decision, Yonko versus Brunetti, both of which involved um, you know, trademark restrictions impinging upon speech. So I'll be curious to see if this continues on that trend of getting rid of these prohibitions uh, for First Amendment grounds. Um, and that's all I have on my two cases. So thank you so much. Um, so it's back to me, actually, um, for our next cases. I want to just point out, I meant to mention at the beginning that we are planning to leave time for Q&A at the end. So please hold your questions for that, but make sure to write them down because we can talk about any of these cases or other things that you're thinking about. Uh, towards the end of the program. So turning to United States versus Rahimi. So this is the first time that the court will revisit uh, the Second Amendment issues after its landmark decision last year in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. As a quick refresher, Bruin struck down New York's handgun licensing law that had required New Yorkers who wanted to carry a handgun in public to show some kind of special need to defend themselves. Um, that in that decision, the court recognized a broad right to conceal and carry firearms and announced a new test for assessing whether or not regulations violate the Second Amendment. Writing for a 6-3 majority, Justice Thomas announced the rule that if the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, then the government has the burden to show that the regulation is consistent with the historical understanding of the Second Amendment. The case rejected any kind of like means end scrutiny test, like intermediate scrutiny that many courts had been applying to Second Amendment challenges for years. Okay, so this case now involves the constitutionality of a federal criminal law, 18 U.S.C. section 922 G8, which prohibits the possession of firearms by persons subject to domestic violence restraining orders. The criminal defendant who brought this challenge Zaki Rahimi had a domestic violence restraining order entered against him after he battered his girlfriend in a parking lot 
and told her that he would shoot her if she told anyone about it. He was later on found in possession of a gun in violation of that order and charged and then pled guilty to section 922 G8. When he then appealed that decision, the Fifth Circuit initially upheld it, but later changed its mind and threw out the conviction because of the Bruin case, so that the case I was just telling you about. In applying Bruin's historical understanding framework, the Fifth Circuit reasoned that Rahimi retains his right to bear arms under the Second Amendment, under its text. So unless the government can show that the statute's regulation of possession of a handgun by a domestic abuser was consistent with the country's historical understanding of regulating firearms, um, then that statute would be unconstitutional. And after finding that indeed there was no historical analog, it held the provision unconstitutional. Okay, so this is important for a handful of reasons, but in particular, um, we'll, we'll see whether and what, how the court is gonna draw a line for permissive regulations um, under the Second Amendment. And there are a couple key issues playing out here. The first is the question about how specific the historical analog needs to be in order to satisfy the government's burden, that the regulation here is basically the same as what the historical understanding of regulation was in the past. So the government says that there is historical precedent for depriving individuals of the right to bear arms if they're not law-abiding, if they're not responsible individuals, and certainly if they pose a serious threat to others. Okay, Rahimi, in contrast, is saying no, um, there was no historical law permitting disarmament or disarming of domestic abusers, such as the gun possession law here. So how narrow, how specific does this analog need to be in order to fall within um, a permissible regulation? The second key thing to pay attention to in this class is that in Bruin, Justice Kavanaugh, who was joined by the Chief Justice, wrote a concurrence noting that the limits, noting certain limits on Bruin, on the court's decision in that case, and said that the Second Amendment allows a variety of gun regulations. Right? He then quotes substantially from Justice Scalia's earlier decision in Heller, which was a landmark Second Amendment case, when he said, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding carrying of firearms in sensitive places like schools, government buildings, or imposing you know, conditions and qualifications on the um, commercial sale of arms. So the fact that Justice Kavanaugh, the Chief Justice, signed on to that concurrence implies that like, they see some limitation. And the question is, how is this gonna, how, how are they gonna view this type of regulation? And because there are two of them, is there a chance that they're, like, will they stick to this, like, strict historical reasoning in Bruin? Or might we see some kind of middle-of-the-road approach um, that adapts that historical test to kind of carve out some form of modern-day regulations like the ones that they articulate in that? So you can live stream um, the live, the oral argument um, if you're really interested in this on November 7th. So the next case, the CFPB versus Community Financial Services Association, is a case involving a constitutional challenge to an administrative agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and whether its funding structure violates the appropriations clause in the Constitution. Now, because I, I'm just guessing you guys don't remember that off the top of your head, exactly what the words are, um, the clause provides that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. So in other words, it says Congress has the power to determine how and when money is gonna be allocated for public purposes. So to understand this case, it's important to understand some of the background of the CFPB, its funding structure, and kind of the underlying facts of this case. So I'll go through that quickly here. Congress created the CFPB in 2008 following the financial crisis, and the agency's purpose is to implement and where applicable enforce federal, financial, federal consumer financial laws. Um, that includes, among other things, making rules that prohibit unfair, deceptive, and abusive practices in connection with consumer financial products and services. So specifically in this case, there's a regulation that the CFPB made with respect to payday lenders that limited their ability to try to withdraw funds from consumers' bank accounts 
um, after they twice had two consecutive attempts at withdrawing funds and, and it failed due to lack of funds in the account. Um, you know, the payday lenders obviously don't like this rule. Um, and they filed a loss to associations of, of, um, of these types of organizations, filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the CFPB. So their main argument is that the funding structure of the agency violates the appropriations clause because when Congress created the agency um, and laid out the statute, it directed another agency, the Federal Reserve System, to allocate some of its money each year to the CFPB, subject to a certain statutory cap. So it doesn't specify the exact amount, but says up to a certain cap, um, you can collect money from the Fed, um, and the CFPB director gets to basically decide about how much money they're gonna need that year and request it through that process. So this is a type of a standing appropriation, meaning that it's authorized unless and until Congress decides to change the amount or the mechanism of the funding scheme. So the process operates outside of Congress's annual formal appropriations process. Though there are some other kind of oversight mechanisms like financial disclosures, um, committee um, appearances, and certain annual audits. So the government's you know, position here is that this funding structure is consistent with the appropriations clause because Congress did appropriate money um, for a specific cause from a specific um, source and subject to certain limitations like this cap, and that's all that the Appropriations Clause requires. And in fact, you know, nothing in the Constitution says that Congress has to appropriate something annually or biannually. In fact, there are some textual provisions that actually indicate the opposite, that there are no limit, such limitations. But the challengers are concerned that if this funding structure is okay, then there are few, if any, limitations on how Congress could allocate money. For example, you know, we have a statutory cap here, but it begs the question whether Congress could pass some kind of um, you know, standing uh, law that allows the executive to come in without any cap and just pull money for an agency kind of without any real guidance from Congress. So there are a few reasons why this case matters. First, the challengers argue that you know, it's not just that the regulation, that payday lender regulation, is unconstitutional or otherwise invalid, but they argue the entire agency is unconstitutional. And if the court agrees, it could derail not only how they, whether and if the agency can operate at all, but also throw into doubt regulations and enforcement efforts that it has undertaken over the past decade. Um, certainly you could see how that could have a dramatic effect on the economy and on the government's ability to continue enforcing consumer financial protection laws um, until, unless and until Congress kind of either fixes this tweak or otherwise um, passes a new statute. Second, it turns out, maybe this is surprising or not, the CFPB is not the only agency in Congress or that Congress has created with this type of standing funding structure. Over the course of history, Congress has appropriated funds using a similar mechanism um, you know, in a number of different examples, we don't even have to look far. So the Federal Reserve Board, the one that's gonna be passing along the money here, turns out they also operate with such kind of standing um, appropriations that are not revisited every single year. The um, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, the Office of the Controller of Currency, OCC. Um, programs like Social Security and Medicare don't get annual appropriations every time. Um, those are kind of similar concepts. So a decision that would invalidate the CFPB on these grounds could call into question the constitutionality of all of these different other agencies and programs. All right, and third, um, as we were just kind of hearing from Professor Kumar with respect to the Chevron deference question, this case represents just kind of another example of the justice, of at least some of the justices' skepticism over administrative agencies and their concerns about Congress ceding too much power over to the executive branch. So, um, turns out the court just heard oral argument on this on Tuesday, so we have a little bit of information about where they are coming out. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's quite divided. At least three justice, or at least four justices, it seems, were quite skeptical of the government's argument. Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and the Chief Justice. Um, concerning, is particularly concerned about the lack of limitations on Congress's power with how they are able to appropriate funds. On the other side, Justice Kagan, Sotomayor, Jackson, and perhaps interestingly, Justice Barrett um, were skeptical or at least had concerns um, 
of the challengers argument um, on a handful of different basis, both based on kind of the historical um, upending that would happen, as well as Justice Barrett was kind of focused on how difficult it would be for the court to be the one to try and figure out what an appropriate statutory cap was or whether um, Congress had appropriately set limitations. So it may all come down to Justice Kavanaugh, who was quite quiet um, during the argument, but he seemed to say something you know, to both sides about the fact that Congress could just easily come in and fix this, which maybe you could read as, um, as you know, him not being so concerned that this was some kind of perpetual or permanent you know, issue um, that the agency was going to run amok if Congress could just come in and fix it if, in, in fact, something happened. So I guess we will see what happens probably sometime next year. And with that, I turn it over to Professor Anguiano. Thanks so much, Professor Bentley. I'm going to be talking about two uh, immigration cases that the court will hear this term, Campos Chavez v. Garland and Wilkinson v. Garland. And I'm particularly excited to talk about the first one because we actually represent Mr. Campos Chavez at the Supreme Court, uh, the clinic that I run, the Federal Immigration Litigation Clinic, and the clinic that Professor Bentley runs, the Civil Rights Appellate Clinic, together with our students, some of whom are here, um, are having great fun representing Mr. Campos Chavez in his important case. And needless to say, everything that I'm going to talk about here is part of the public record um, that is, is uh, easily available. So I'll first talk about uh, a little bit about the facts of Mr. Campos Chavez's case. And um, as my students know, you know, one of the reasons I like to do that is because I think it's really important to center the individuals um, who are impacted by the cases that the Supreme Court decides. So Mr. and obviously because the facts matter too to what the court is going to decide. Um, Mr. Campos Chavez is a native and citizen of El Salvador and he came to the United States in 2005. Um, since then he's established a life here. He has two kids who were born in the United States um, and has been a, a contributing member of our community. Shortly after he entered, so again this is 2005, uh, the Department of Homeland Security initiated removal proceedings against him. And to do that, they served him with something called a notice to appear. And that notice to appear is very significant and at the center of this case. And per the statute, it has to, it has to include certain information. One of the pieces of information that the statute requires that it include, but it did not in Mr. Campos' Chavez case, is the date and time and place of his initial removal hearing. The NTA, as we like to refer to as the notice to appear, did not include that information in his case. The immigration court, not the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security is the prosecuting authority. The immigration court is the entity that decides removal proceedings. That court later sent Mr. Campos Chavez a notice of the date and place of his removal hearing. That removal hearing occurred about five months later um, five months after Mr. Campos Chavez was put in removal proceedings, and the immigration court ordered him removed in absentia. And that's because Mr. Campos Chavez was not present at that hearing. So the uh, immigration court entered an order of removal then. Remember, this was 2005. Fast forward to several years later, specifically in 2018, Mr. Campos Chavez went to the immigration court to try to get his order of removal rescinded and reopened. And the reason he wanted to do that is because that would allow him to have a day in court and actually seek um, relief from removal called cancellation of removal. And as the name of that type of relief might indicate, it's a type of immigration relief that allows you, uh, allows a non-citizen that would otherwise be removable from the United States to cancel that removal. I'm a little sick, so my voice is kind of going bare with me. And the, the, the basis for Mr. Campos Chavez's request to the immigration court was that the initial notice to appear that the uh, Department of Homeland Security had served upon him was defective. It did not actually comply with uh, the statutory requirements that the Immigration and Nationality Act sets out. And so the question that the court is going to decide this term in Mr. Campos Chavez's case has to do with the notice requirements that are imposed upon the Department of Homeland Security before an immigration court can enter an in absentia order of removal that then the, the, the non-citizen can then not rescind, one that basically stays on the book and cannot be rescinded. 
The Supreme Court, this is actually a really exciting case for, for many reasons, but one of them is that Mr. Campos Chavez's case is actually the follow-on, the third in a series of cases that the Supreme Court has already decided. The first one is Pereira v. Sessions, and that case was decided in 2018, and there the Supreme Court held for the first time that this document that I mentioned, the notice to appear, has to, under the statute, in order for it to be a valid notice to appear, has to include that date and time for the initial hearing. The second case is Nice Chavez, and that was decided in 2020, and that case then built off of Pereira and said that the notice to appear was a notice to appear, so that an initial document that did not include the date and time combined with another document later sent, in particular by the immigration court, together were not a notice to appear. It had to be a single document. But importantly here, the Supreme Court decided those cases not in the context of in absentia removal, but in the context of a form of relief that I mentioned, cancellation of removal. So what the court is going to decide here is whether for the purposes now of a separate issue, again, in absentia removal, whether uh, the immigration court is authorized to enter a non-rescindable order of removal if the Department of Homeland Security serves a notice to appear that did not, does not include date and time, and then the immigration court later sends a notice of hearing that does include that date and time. And perhaps for obvious reasons, this, um, this case stands to have a large impact not only on non-citizens, because if, if the court rules in the way that we're advocating as advocates for Mr. Campos Chavez, then folks like him and him in particular would be perhaps permitted to reopen their removal cases and apply for forms of relief that they may be eligible for. But I think it also stands to just benefit courts, and in particular the immigration courts and the agency, in that it will provide additional clarity about what precisely is the notice to appear and what precisely is required of the Department of Homeland Security to put people in removal proceedings. The second case I'm gonna talk about is Wilkinson uh, v. Garland. And again, I'll start with the facts of that case. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson is a non-citizen, and we do not represent Mr. Wilkinson. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson is a non-citizen from Trinidad and Tobago, who again came to the United States about 20 years ago in 2003. And significant here, 10 years later, he had a son um, with whom he is he's very close and, and plays a, a pivotal role in his life. Uh, Fast forward to 2019, Mr. Wilkinson was put in removal proceedings, and then he applied for that form of removal, uh, excuse me, relief from removal that I mentioned, cancellation of removal. And to be eligible for that, which is ultimately a discretionary form of relief, it's not a matter of relief as of right, uh, but to be eligible, just eligible, the non-citizen has to prove one, one of those elements, the one that matters here, is that they have a qualifying relative who has to be a US citizen or a lawful permanent resident who would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship if the person in removal proceedings is ultimately removed. And so um, the immigration court heard testimony and, and saw evidence going as to this element, found Mr. Wilkinson credible, found the people who testified on his behalf credible, found certain findings of fact going to that element, such as um, health issues of his son, the kind of role that Mr. Wilkinson played in his son's life, but ultimately determined that those established facts did not rise to that level of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And um, that standard is basically, um, paraphrasing here, that removal has to, has to cause harm beyond just the regular harm that a family member might experience when a loved one is removed. So the immigration court denied relief um, based on that, on that basis. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals who agreed with the immigration judge's decision. And then Mr. Wilkinson sought review in, federal, in the federal court in the Third Circuit. And the Third Circuit said nothing about the merits of the issue, whether or not the, the agency had been right or wrong about that, that um, conclusion, but simply that it had no jurisdiction to actually review it. And that is what the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not courts of appeals have jurisdiction to even consider whether there's agency error in the ultimate finding of whether established facts 
rise to the level of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And there are two specific statutory provisions at play here. One is that the INA, the Immigration Nationality Act, removes jurisdiction from federal courts to review some discretionary decisions of discretionary um, modes of relief, like cancellation, but then it provides it back. So it takes away jurisdiction overall, but then provides it back for questions of law. And so the precise question here is whether established facts meet the standard of exceptional, extremely unusual hardship, whether that's a question of law that's reviewable or not. And so for obvious reasons, this will have um, large impact on non-citizens, but also on just the federal courts. Um, I think there's a lot of desire to have clarity as to this precise jurisdictional question because it stands to also impact how other questions in immigration law um, are considered, whether they're considered judicially reviewable or not. Thank you so much. And we'll turn it for our last um, couple of cases to Professor Rodenstein. All right, thank you very much. Um, so I'll start by talking about uh, two cases um, that are going to be heard together sort of as one, uh, NetChoice v. Paxton and Moody versus NetChoice. Um, so these are cases that are arising out of two state laws, one in Florida, one in Texas, that both purport to limit uh, what technology platforms, Twitter, Facebook, sorry, the artist formerly known as Twitter, um, uh, what, what they can do, uh, what they can do when they try to moderate content. Right? So they call it moderation, critics call it censorship, you can call it whatever you want, but basically when they take down or otherwise um, uh, lower the circulation of content, um, can, can they do that in those states? Uh, now the details of the laws are different. Um, the uh, Texas law applies sort of broadly to all users, and that's where its focus is. The Florida law applies somewhat more narrowly to um, uh, news organizations and politicians, but again, both are addressing sort of the same issue, which is can the government, and in this case a state government, though there's sort of same question for the federal government, uh, can the government limit content moderation practices of large platforms? Uh, in both of those cases, the platforms through their trade association, NetChoice, sued, um, alleging that these laws violated the First Amendment, specifically that they violated the platform's own First Amendment rights to decide what they publish. The 11th Circuit, struck down the Florida law, holding that it did in fact violate the First Amendment, and the Fifth Circuit, in a particularly spicy opinion, uh, upheld the Texas law uh, in, in quite um, vigorous terms, uh, basically denying that there was any First Amendment issue uh, at all, uh, and then just recently, I think actually in the long conference, um, so after we first announced this uh, uh, event, um, the Supreme Court agreed to grant uh, cert, and uh, these are quite important cases, so we figured we'd, uh, we'd talk about them. Um, I, I think Without exaggeration, it is fair to say that these have the potential to be some of the most important First Amendment cases in decades. Um, certainly, this would be by far the most important case ever regarding the internet. It's not even a close call. Um, because uh, for the first time, the court is going to squarely address the extent of permissible government regulation of what has become the dominant platform and the dominant public sphere. And what's particularly fun about these cases is that it's actually very unclear what's going to happen with them. Uh, and for that, let me say just a little bit about the doctrinal background here and try to tee up what's so interesting about these cases. Uh, in the 1960s, I think it's the 60s or in the 70s, in a case called uh, Miami Herald versus Tornillo, the Supreme Court struck down uh, a law, also coincidentally a Florida law, that would require newspapers to publish responses from politicians who were criticized in their op-ed pages. And the court struck down that law, and in doing so articulated uh, what has come to be known as the Tornillo Doctrine, which is that publishers have a First Amendment right to control what, is, uh, what, what, what they choose to publish and what they choose not to publish. Since then, the court has applied that in a number of contexts. It's applied that to, for example, uh, parade organizers and who they uh, let in their parades. It has applied that to businesses and what they include in their customer communications. On the other hand, the court has rejected that in other situations. So for example, in Pruneyard, the court held that a shopping mall did not have a First Amendment right to kick out people who wanted to uh, distribute leaflets. Uh, in another case, um, actually involving law schools, uh, the court held that law schools did not have a First Amendment right to uh, not allow military recruiters onto their campuses, which many law schools tried not to do in the early 2000s. Many universities tried to do back when the military still had a, the don't ask, don't tell policy against uh, gay and lesbian uh, uh, service members. Um, 
It's never been exactly clear what the line is between editorial protection that has First Amendment, uh, uh, or editorial discretion that has First Amendment protections and uh, the ones that does not. And so the court is poised to answer this um, uh, in a way that's going to be quite uh, important. Another interesting feature about this case is that um, uh, whether or not the court strikes down these laws, I suspect what's going to be more important is how they strike them down. Both of the laws have very serious flaws, uh, even for those who think that technology companies should be subject to at least some regulation by the government when it comes to limiting the free expression of users. Um, and they could backfire in a number of ways. So for example, the Texas law um, uh, limits the ability of platforms to quote unquote discriminate based on viewpoint, uh, but does not require platforms to allow discussion on any particular viewpoint. This of course could incentivize platforms to just not allow conversation on any of a number of hot button cultural issues, abortion, reproductive rights, gay rights issues, racial issues, you know, whatever it is because the platforms don't want to deal with this. Uh, and so um, the law could backfire in the sense of actually constricting expression for users rather than encouraging it. Uh, similarly, another way could, uh, the laws could backfire is if they essentially wreck the platforms altogether. Uh, the Florida law, for example, does not allow platforms to um, uh, moderate or censor, again, however you want to call it, the speech of media organizations or politicians basically on any grounds. And it defines media organizations very broadly, which means that if the Daily Stormer wants to uh, you know, say stuff on uh, Facebook, they're presumably going to be able to. Now, the Daily Stormer gets to say whatever it wants under the First Amendment. The problem is that users and advertisers don't necessarily want to be on a cesspool of white supremacy. Uh, and so uh, if that's what the uh, platforms create, they might essentially destroy the very platforms that they're trying to protect uh, or trying to improve in, in, the, in the free speech sense. Uh, so for a number of reasons, the uh, laws could be struck down, and I suspect they probably will be struck down. They're just not very well-written laws. Uh, but the really interesting question is what the court says in striking those laws down. Because, of course, the Supreme Court could say, well, Tornillo and these First Amendment cases apply very broadly to platforms, and there's essentially nothing that the government can do to regulate. That would be one extreme. Or the court could say, well, these laws are just bad laws. They're just not very well thought out. But um, we're open to other laws. We're open to narrower laws. We're open to laws that are better written. Um, and um, this is a case where there's not an obvious political valence or an ideological valence on the court. Um, on the one hand, you have some of the more conservative justices, particularly those that are more enmeshed in the sort of conservative media and legal sphere, um, say Justices Thomas and Alito, um, who uh, along with uh, much of the, the right over the past several years have become very suspicious of large platforms, which they view as in many ways quite biased against conservative uh, voices. This, of course, uh, was uh, uh, most dramatically to them represented when the platforms kicked off then-President Donald Trump um, who, uh, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So these two might not be super excited about giving platforms carte blanche to continue, in their view, discriminating against conservatives. On the other hand, you have the three liberal justices, Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, who have their own ideological reasons not to want to give uh, large corporate, uh, you know, large corporations enormous First Amendment rights, which might leave the sort of quote unquote middle justices like Gorsuch, Chief Justice Barrett, and Kavanaugh in a kind of odd. Um, in, in, in an odd and uh, rare minority. So you could have a situation where the laws get struck down and you have 17 different opinions, uh, which you know, for law professors like me is fabulous and for poor con law students like you is less fabulous. Um, but that's the way it goes. So that's one case that I'm, uh, and I think many of us are interested in. The other case that I wanted to mention, uh, which is not actually before the court yet, but it sure as hell might be, is uh, Grove versus Simon. So this is the uh, petition uh, tr seeking to disqualify former President Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which reads, in the cleaned up version here, um, uh, no person shall hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Uh, due to a quirk in Minnesota law, you can bring these sorts of challenges directly in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be hearing oral argument uh, on this on November 2nd. For those who are interested, uh, the law school will be hosting a one-day uh, conference on this uh, on the Monday, May uh, 30th, uh, which will be, I think, uh, quite interesting, and uh, look out for an announcement of that later this week. Um, there are other uh, such uh, cases popping up all over the country. There's one in Colorado, uh, and there's likely going to be one filed in every single state. Um, if, the, if any of these states um, 
uh, in fact, do disqualify President Trump, former President Trump, from the ballot. It is almost certain that the Supreme Court will hear the case and hear it quickly. And even if they don't, the Supreme Court might hear the case anyway um, uh, if the petitioners appeal just to provide clarity on this important issue. Um, what they do at that point is really anyone's guess if the Supreme Court would grant certiorari in these cases, um, as I think there is a very substantial likelihood that they will, it will by definition become one of the most important cases in US history and raising a lot of very interesting and difficult legal issues that again, um, I don't think fall on obvious uh, ideological lines. One can uh, be a, a critic of the former president and still think that um, in a democracy, um, one should hesitate before um, uh, disqualifying someone from the ballot. And when it comes to legal issues, there are a number of tricky ones ranging from what counts as an insurrection under Section 3 to the question of whether Section 3 is self-executing uh, or whether or not it requires Congress to pass legislation in order for it to be operative. Um, all interesting issues. And so again, while not before the Supreme Court, this term could very well be, at which point it will uh, likely become the most important case of the term for obvious reasons. Great. So um, I'm so impressed with us. We were so punctual and actually kept to our time. So we have a good amount of time for questions. What sort I of hope... law professors are we? I know. I don't know. Have we failed or are we winning? I can't tell. Um, hopefully winning because I'm, I'm hoping that you all have some questions that we can answer to the best of our abilities. Um, there are microphones on either side of the aisle. So feel free to, to step up and um, you know we'll sit here kind of like awkward crickets Awkwardly until... waiting. Yeah. <laughs> but totally cool if you all know everything there is to know about the Supreme Court term this year. <laughs> <laughs> or hopefully we didn't, we weren't, um, it wasn't so complex that you don't understand any of it. Somewhere in between. I will award three gold stars to the first person who asks a question. All right, it's your... Yeah, sorry, do you mind though? I, I grabbing the microphone only because there are um, there's they were they're recording it and there may be an overflow room just so everybody can hear if you're if they're not in the room. Um, and maybe just Oh, sure. So let me clarify something about how trademarks work. So this case, Vidal versus Elster, with regard to the trademark, it's limited to t-shirts. So it would be specifically for t-shirts being sold with the slogan, Trump so small, or Trump too small. Um, I know, I'm just going to keep saying that over and over again. Um, so the, the, like, there's sort of two sides to it, right? Um, on one hand, we don't like the idea, or some people don't like the idea, of the government restricting what kinds of things can you get trademark protection on, because it's making a value-based judgment in doing that, which raises First Amendment concerns. Um, for example, there was a, the uh, Mattel versus Tam case. There was a band called The Slants, uh, an Asian group that wanted to kind of reclaim that name. And initially, they got rejected on their trademark, and it got overturned on First Amendment grounds. You're right that if the person succeeds, then that person alone will be able to sell t-shirts with the slogan on it. Uh, but people will still be able to talk about Trump too small, discuss it, sell other goods besides t-shirts that say Trump too small. So and there's, it, in that regard, there'll still be speech about it. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, Professor Rosenstein, what does the U.S. government say in the Net Choice case? Haven't they yes. involved in some of that litigation already? Yeah, that's right. The the the, the U.S. government, um, the Solicitor General, um, uh, the Supreme Court asked the Solicitor General. Uh, whether they should take the case. And the Solicitor General argued that they should and they should rule for net choice in both of these cases. Um, and they took uh, what I thought was a pretty surprisingly pro-business position for uh, an administration that otherwise styles itself as relatively progressive. 
saying that there is no, that the government and therefore the states have no legitimate interest uh, in trying to help private individuals access otherwise private platforms. Um, and I think this actually kind of cuts to the heart of this case. So the First Amendment here is involved primarily uh, on behalf of the companies because they're saying we have a First Amendment right. And of course the government can't say, well you also have a First Amendment obligation to your users because the First Amendment by definition only applies to government restrictions on speech. That's the state action requirement. Um, but if you step back and you ask, well why do we have the First Amendment? Um, I think one plausible explanation is not just that we're concerned about government censorship, but that we want generally there to be more diverse speech in society. And so although the First Amendment does not require companies to um, host content that they disagree with, I do think it can fairly be read as offering support, even if not legal, let's call it vibes support, um, for the government trying to um, step in and provide that access. So you think we're seeing here sort of a clash of two visions of the First Amendment. Is it primarily about preventing the government from controlling private actors, or can it also be invoked, at least atmospherically, by the government to require stronger private actors to provide speech opportunities for weaker private actors? Yep, go ahead. Um, so going back to the um, Rahimi case, mm -hmm. you mentioned the historical analog test that I think you said was being applied specifically in Second Amendment cases. Um, but the description of that reminded me a lot of the Dobbs decision where the, the reasoning was going back to like common law in England. I mean, it seems similar. And I'm just wondering if it seems like that test might be applied explicitly in things beyond the Second Amendment going forward, if that's an approach that the court is taking on like more explicitly, or if that's just something that's kind of, you know, a general like conservative court they're going to be looking back into history. That question makes yeah, sense. it's a great, great observation. And I think you're, you're, um, you're certainly onto something that this court uh, is very concerned with what the Constitution, the rights established in the Constitution meant at the time of the founding. So the Second Amendment is kind of the most clear kind of test that the court uh, articulated about how, you know, if when I mentioned kind of if, if it's covered within the kind of text of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, we're going to look to a historical um, uh, analog to see whether or not it's within the, the, the framing. And in doing that, it kind of got rid of like, you know, things like intermediate scrutiny, strict scrutiny, where you weigh a government interest against the restriction on the right, right? So that's kind of a, um, how they articulated there. But the Dobbs decision is absolutely another example where in trying to define and understand the meaning of a right, in that case, whether there's a right under the principles of due process or you know, a right to, um, to privacy, this idea of like in, when we're defining that, we're going to look back to these historical time periods to see whether or not the framers um, thought that that right existed at that time. And so certainly you're going to see this, at least with this current court that kind of has that originalist um, you know, preference for originalist inquiry, like go through that process. One really interesting thing um, that I, we haven't seen quite play out yet, um, it, it was some, in some commentary around Dobbs, but you don't see the court really engage with this, um, and you don't see it expressly in this case, but like when we talk about when, you know, the, the, the framers of the Constitution, are we talking about the framers in the context of like 1787 when the Constitution kind of was originally adopted? Or do we look at the kind of second founding at the time of the, when the, the, um, the uh, country adopted or passed and ratified the 14th Amendment as something that really radically changed the conception of what the Bill of Rights means or what, the 14th, what, what concepts of equal protection or due process mean? And there is some debate, and the court hasn't weighed in yet on which founding do we talk about, that sometimes, and at least in the Dobbs decision, I think they kind of set this aside saying, well, it wasn't any different between those two time periods. But we may see down the line in other contexts, and certainly in the context of um, racial discrimination or cases involving um, uh, race, whether there would be a difference between what 
you know, the, the original kind of framers would have intended and what the framers of the 14th Amendment had intended. So those are a lot of dynamics that you're gonna, I absolutely see pop up in, in different areas as, as we kind of see this court continue to reach important cases. Hi. Um, thank you guys so much for coming and talking to all of us. I just had a question regarding the um, net choice cases with the internet. Is there any sort of precedent or debate regarding whether the internet is a public space or a public forum and how might that affect the outcome for either side um, regarding the First Amendment considerations? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So um, a few terms ago, and I forget exactly which case this is, my apologies. Um, there was a case in which either all the justices, or maybe it was Justice Kavanaugh in concurrence, um, rejected the idea that the internet and that platforms are a um, uh, kind of public square analog along the lines of the shopping malls in the Pruneyard case um, because they're trying to read those precedents narrowly and running social media platforms has not been a traditional government function. Um, on the other hand, um, the Supreme Court, and in cases we did not talk about uh, um, uh, now, but are also important cases this term, is hearing a couple of cases about whether or not when public officials use platforms, um, can they ban people from their accounts, right? So if you're on Twitter, right? Um, sorry, X. Um, you can block some. I just, I'm never going to get over it. Um, you can block someone uh, from your account. And so the question is, well, if you're the mayor or the senator or the president of the United States, can you do so? And um, there's conflicting case law on this, and the Supreme Court's going to answer that question. Uh, and they wouldn't have taken that case unless they wanted to say something interesting uh, about that. Um, so there, there, I could see a world in which they say that, you know, under certain very narrow conditions, um, the, uh, the, uh, Platforms are a kind of uh, public, uh, a kind of public square. Thank you. Oh, great. I see another question. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi. This is for Professor Anguiano. Um, I was able to observe immigration courts when a decision, uh, I believe it was Fernandez, came from the Immigration Board of Appeals. Uh, which kind of set out and clarified the requirement of date and time. And I saw how it kind of affected the approach and strategy of um, defense attorneys for immigration, their approaches. So I'm wondering if you could talk more about how the Supreme Court Garland cases will or won't shape the strategies that attorneys on the ground use in removal proceedings. That's an excellent question, and I'm... I'm I think so. I'm glad you had a, had a chance to observe immigration court, and I think that's so important in trying to understand how these these decisions that the Supreme Court um, ultimately issues impact uh, non-citizens underground and and also their advocates. I think it, they absolutely. So Wilkinson and Campos Chavez will actually absolutely have an effect on on advocacy and and on. Uh, how non-citizens might litigate their cases. So Campos Chavez taking that one first. You know what. what Depending on what the court decides, if the court takes the the decides in, in the way that we're advocating, which is that the Department of Homeland Security must, in every case, issue a, what we call a statutorily compliant notice to appear, which is a document, single document that also includes that date and time, then that could potentially open up avenues for some non-citizens to reopen their cases um, and or to rescind those in absentia orders of removal and um, reopen their cases. And I think, you know, I want to highlight one thing that I know will be important to the court is that, you know, there's an argument that, that this can potentially open up floodgates for, for you know, hundreds or millions of non-citizens um, to reopen in absentia orders or removal. But I think that uh, I would expect that, or not expect, statutorily and, and really practically, non-citizens who move to reopen will generally be non-citizens who qualify for some form of removal and are not just opening um, old cases, you know, frankly, for no reason. And what I think is uh, less uh, clear is what impact a decision like Campos Chavez or in the, the uh, predecessor cases, Pereira and Nice Chavez, 
will have on any challenges to other deficiencies in the NTA, right? So these have been very focused on date and time. Um, you know, personally, I haven't seen any any NTAs without charges. You know, that's one of the, the pieces of information that it requires, um, that the NTA requires. But I think that advocates might also start to pay a little bit more attention um, about uh, other procedural deficiencies, perhaps, in, in immigration law. Or, I'm sorry, deficiencies in, in the NTA or in other documents that the Department of Homeland Security may issue. And with respect to Wilkinson, you know, I think that that decision probably stands to have, um, as I mentioned earlier, a really big impact on other questions um, of reviewability. You know, it's just dealing with whether the, the facts establish this particular standard, but there are many other such questions in immigration law where particular facts may or may not uh, rise to the level of a particular standard. And I think that in particular, if the court says that that is a question of law versus a question of fact, I think that might um, make it much easier for other questions to be reviewed in federal courts, not just the one that the court is considering right now, which is beneficial to non-citizens. Um, and I, I, I do wonder uh, how the courts maybe increasing distrust of agency decision-making in general might impact their decision in Wilkinson, um, because the, the impact of the court saying it's not a reviewable question of law is that that can potentially allow certain erroneous decisions by the agency to go unchallenged. So um, with that, we are totally out of time. I know we have one more question. I invite you to come down and chat with us afterwards. Uh, thank you so much for being a great audience and hope that you pay close attention to what happens at the court this year. And thank you to my fellow panelists. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law Podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.